0: I would just invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's where we're going to settle in for our time this morning. Many historians and pundits and commentators and social observers would come together and likely agree to one degree or another that uh, our country is at a tipping point or maybe even beyond a tipping point. And they would say that we either are rapidly becoming or have already officially become what sociologists call are calling a post-Christian society, a post-Christian nation. Former National Review editor John O'Sullivan provides the following definition of post-Christianity. He says, quote, A post-Christian society is not merely a society in which agnosticism or atheism is the prevailing fundamental belief. It is a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have been either rejected or worse, forgotten. According to the Barna Group, 48% of Americans qualify as post-Christian. I'm not sure what all the qualifications are to be post-Christian, but... Nonetheless, that's the data point. One author made this statement about post-Christians, quote, For post-Christians, science, philosophy, and reason are the go-tos for worldviews and decision-making, end quote. Another author said this, quote, More people have more questions about the origins, relevance, and authority of the Scriptures. The steady rise of skepticism is creating a cultural atmosphere that is becoming unfriendly, sometimes even hostile, to claims of faith. In a society that venerates science and rationalism, it is an increasingly hard pill to swallow that an eclectic assortment of ancient stories, poems, sermons, prophecies, and letters written and compiled over the course of 3,000 years is somehow the sacred word of God. Here's another statistic for you to consider. In 2011... 10% of Americans qualified as skeptics when it came to the Bible, but in 2016, just five years later, that number had more than doubled. Currently, 22% of Americans do not believe the Bible has any divine underpinnings, and of course, that data point is at least six or seven years old. Twenty-seven percent of millennial non-Christians believe that, quote, the Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma used for centuries to oppress people, end quote. And sadly, in light of this cultural drift, many pastors, many Christian leaders, even lay people professing believers, They observe this, they see this, they take in the data, they see what they see in the media, in their neighborhoods, in schools, in all the institutions, and they come to the conclusion that this demands that we must change what we do, and more specifically, we must change specifically the things that we say as God's people when it comes to gospel engagement with this post-Christian culture. In light of that, let let me define a couple of terms for us to consider as we kind of move more into our study. The first term is rhetoric. Rhetoric is defined as the art or study of using language effectively and persuasively. The second term I want us to keep in mind as we move through our time this morning, is the term sophistry. Sophistry is defined as a plausible but misleading or fallacious argument. The first people that thought and wrote about rhetoric were indeed known as the sophists in the 5th century BC. These ancient Greek intellectuals, were largely employed in the teaching of noble Athenians, teaching their children, their sons primarily, in the ways of influential, convincing, and persuasive rhetoric so that they could be influential in the assembly. During this time of the sophists, several handbooks about the art of rhetoric were written. One such book that is probably somewhat familiar to you, if you have any recollection of philosophy classes. It's actually entitled Rhetorics, and it was written by Aristotle. Now eventually, when Greece was subsumed into the Roman Empire, a new form of sophistry or a new type of sophist emerged, bringing us into the first and second century .AD, in the time of the writing of First Corinthians. The title at this time of Sophist referred to these rhetorical virtuosos, these, these grand orators, these, these men who could formulate persuasive and compelling arguments. And they were able to do this through improvis- uh, uh, improvisation. They would just take a subject. From the audience, and they would take a few minutes and then they would come back and they would dazzle the gathered masses with their skill of oratory. These performers would do their oratory and these speeches in theaters to the gathering of large crowds, and they were literally the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of our modern day pop star. They, they were that kind of uh, entertainer, if you will. They had fan followings. They were lavished with civic and public adoration. They were adorned with fanfare and clothing and jewelry and monetary resources. They were, in most respects, celebrities in the ancient world. These sophists, these oratory virtuosos, these new sophists of the first and second century A.D. dazzled audiences, and the audiences. This is what's so compelling about this, as we think about First Corinthians. It was the fact that the audiences grew to value the skills of the orators of the sophists so highly that the truthfulness of what these orators were saying was not relevant or substantive. It was the manner in which they spoke. It was the persuasive effectiveness of their communication that won them the praise. But even further, audiences and followers of these virtuosos would ascribe to these sophists who were merely speaking in many cases extemporaneously and mixing fact and fiction all along the way, but just trying to impress with their skills and the art of oratory, many of their adherents, many of their followers, would ascribe to these virtuosos, these orators, the moniker of wise men. So these men who could communicate with a certain flair and a certain persuasive Type of language and rhetoric were not only enjoyed, but they were elevated to the place of wisdom. Now fast forward to our modern era. In 2015, in an article in Financial Times entitled, We Are All Sophists Now or Should Be, the writer of this article says this, The most resilient skill in the modern world is argument. We are all sophists now, or we should be. What unites the elite professions in any international city is their command of sophistry. Attorneys and management consultants, political advisors and advertising executives, public relations strategists, and even certain types of investment bankers all trade on the same skill. It is the ability to frame any given problem on your own terms so that your conclusion is irresistible to the client or jury or investor or politician or reader. To be clear, the writer of this article goes on to say, this is not the same thing as being right. What matters is being persuasive, end quote. The ideas and values of persuasive and influential people are not merely esteemed over and above truth now, they can literally define or redefine truth altogether. That's the era that we're in now. In other words, we might say that our modern society has become sophisticated I came across a definition of this term a number of years ago. It just struck me as a very insightful definition. Sophisticated is defined as lacking in original simplicity. We are indeed a sophisticated society. And of course, when ideas are no longer tested by objective standards of truth, and you bring in the rampant influence of sophistry, of the sophists, of those who can make plausible yet misleading arguments, this can rapidly take us in a direction we never could have imagined just a few years ago. In his book, Strange New World, Carl Truman describes the ethos of our time when he says this, quote, For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even in some cases come to be seen by many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if things almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. Nor are the problems confined to the world out there. Often they manifest themselves most acutely and most painfully within families. Parents teaching their family traditional views of sex find themselves met with incomprehensible excuse me, with incomprehension by their children who have absorbed far different views from the culture around them. What a parent considers to be a loving response to a child struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria might be regarded by the child as hateful and bigoted. And this is as true within the church as it is within wider society. The generation gap is reflected not simply in fashion and music, but in attitudes and beliefs about some of the most basic aspects of human existence. The result is often confusion and sometimes even heartbreak, as many of the most brutal engagements in the culture war are played out around the dinner table and at family gatherings. And then he concludes this section in the book by simply saying this, welcome to this strange new world. Now, we know as people of the book, we, we understand that there truly is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, that the things that we're seeing today are not fundamentally or transcendently new. And yet we have to acknowledge that in our immediate experience there are elements of what we are seeing today in our culture, what we are experiencing today the shifts and changes that do seem very strange and very new to us and even at times overwhelming to us. It's in times like these that It's very easy, even for faithful, believing people, to slip into patterns of thinking that merely stir up within us confusion. And it's the kind of confusion that is stirred up in us that looks very much like the confusion that's stirred up all around us. We can quickly become distracted by the cultural chaos that's just swirling all around us and And we can often begin to look for solutions or remedies, oftentimes political solutions that we hope will result in a sweeping course correction of our society. Or we can simply fall into a state of perpetual lament that looks a lot like hopelessness and despair. We look at the current status of things and all we know to do is bemoan the way things are now and it used to not be this way and so forth and so on. And that can lead to what really looks like a kind of hopelessness and despair that is not to be characteristic of a believer who has an eternal hope. And as believers, both individually and collectively, as a, as a local church, what we need in the midst of all this and in the face of all this, I believe, or one of the things we need, is, is just plain and simple gospel clarity. We need gospel clarity to both navigate and to redemptively engage this strange new world. I think the Apostle Paul. And this chapter, in chapter 1, provides that kind of clarity for us. That's what I want us to look at for a little while while this morning. Just a brief word about the city of Corinth, that we're not going to be able to paint the fullest picture to provide the fullest context of, of this interesting and unique city to which Paul was writing the church there. But just note that it was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a big city, a city with a lot of culture, a lot of commerce. Uh, it was also a city that was awash in idolatry and in sensuality and all manner of carnal vices. In addition, New Testament scholar Bruce Winter published a book a number of years ago entitled Philo and Paul Among the Sophists, and he, he provides in that book a very evidence-based convincing argument that what the Apostle Paul is dealing with amongst all the problems that we see delineated as you work your way through 1 Corinthians is he's dealing with this, this influence of the sophists of the first century, those that would make arguments and create followings based upon oratory and not necessarily based upon truth. So in Corinth, you have factiousness based upon party loyalty or loyalty to a particular leader. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. That's what he says in chapter 1. So you have this factiousness. You have normalized, illicit sexuality. You have widespread cultural and religious idolatry, and you have a general boastful pride of life. So welcome to Corinth. But I ask you, does it sound familiar? This is why I find this precious letter so helpful in our time. Well, after the Apostle Paul kind of begins with his traditional salutation, opening remarks, he immediately goes after this first problem of factions. And as he calls out, The divisions that are among them and calls them to unity, we see him move in this direction that we're going to take up today, starting in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And what we'll see as we work through some of these verses is is what I believe are points of gospel clarity that will help us to effectively navigate and engage what we're calling this strange new world. So read with me, uh, starting in verse 17, and we're going to take up a a large chunk. We're not going to be able to deal with all of it, but just to kind of set the broader context in our minds, we're going to read all the way down through chapter 2, verse 5. Starting verse 17, "...for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. but in the power of God. Four points of gospel clarity that I want us to draw out of this lengthy text. Clarity that I hope will help us be effective lights in this strange new world. The first one that I would just draw your attention to is found right there at the very beginning in verse 17. And it's just this. We must have a clear gospel mission. We must be crystal clear about our gospel mission, in other words. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. It's an interesting statement that the Apostle Paul makes here. Now, obviously verse 17 begins with this conjunction for, which indicates that it's connected to something previous. And if you Note, in, starting in verse 14, he's providing there in verses 14 to 16, clarification of what he's saying here in verse 17. He says, I thank God, in verse 14, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. In verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So in a very tangible way, Paul is literally minimizing the extent of his role in baptizing members of the church at Corinth. He's making a clarifying statement about his mission. He's providing gospel clarity about the mission. And he is minimizing or diminishing baptism as a primary element of this mission. I came to preach, he says, not to baptize. He's not only thankful that he only baptized a few people, but he's even highlighting the apparent insignificance of all of this because when you get to verse 16, he kind of goes on a bit of a digression, trying to remember if he baptized anybody else and says, I can't remember that I baptized anybody else. Like, this is a very real diminishment. Of baptism as a significant metric for measuring the accomplishment of the mission. And this is not to diminish the importance of baptism, by the way. I hope no one out there is getting nervous about what I'm saying. In fact, Luke specifically includes baptism as a key component. Of the Apostle Paul's ministry and his description of it in Acts chapter 18, he says, Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. But here, in this focal text in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is driving home this crucial point of clarification about the primary focus of this gospel mission. He's saying, My mission is clear. And it's definitely not to baptize a bunch of personal acolytes and thereby build my own following, in other words. Remember the sophists. My mission, he says, is to do what Christ himself sent me to do, namely to proclaim the good news. That's my mission. This kind of clarity about our mission is absolutely essential. Because clarity about what the mission actually is also will determine what measures we employ to evaluate whether or not we're accomplishing the mission. And if we begin to believe that our mission has something to do with accumulation rather than proclamation then guess what metrics we'll employ to determine whether or not we are accomplishing the mission? We'll begin to count who is it that we baptized? How many came to this or that? How many campuses did we open up? What did we launch? How have we grown? How many people are coming to our things? And mission drift will happen if we lose sight of the core clarity of this mission of proclamation. It's not just proclamation, it's also proclamation of a very specific message, and the content of this message can be measured objectively by an outside authority. It can be verified. You see the Apostle Paul even delineating what this gospel proclamation mission is to be Uh, 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 described as or how it's to be measured or how we're to know whether or not the mission is being accomplished in first Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 8 toward the end of this letter he says now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain and here he goes For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me this is a message that was received from Christ it was not a message conceived in the mind of the apostle paul the apostle paul understood this proclamation mission and he understood the specific nature of the message and it was a message that he received not one that he cleverly conceived himself it's a message specifically about Christ, about his sacrificial death, his actual burial, and his miraculous bodily resurrection. And it's a message that was affirmed by the authority of the scriptures and confirmed by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Very specific. This mission of proclaiming this very specific message. And we have to hold fast to this, he says. This message that we've received and that we're called to proclaim. We have, in other words, a very clear gospel mission. And it is not a mission of accumulation, of head counting, of measuring success by the number of people in the seats. We must recognize as a church and as individual believers that that kind of metric, if it becomes the means by which we evaluate how we are doing in accomplishing the mission, is a very, very dangerous, slippery slope. It is a mission of faithful, steadfast, and unwavering proclamation, not a mission of accumulation, not baptisms recorded, not hands raised at a youth camp, not prayers prayed at a VBS, not aisles walked, not membership cards signed, not church attenders counted or multi-site churches launched or conference invitations received or book sales or celebrity endorsements or any such thing. Do you see how this goes? Many believers look on and evaluate gospel effectiveness by these kinds of metrics. And it's quite possible, maybe even probable, that mission drift has occurred in a dramatic way And people are gathering in droves nonetheless. Listen to Paul's final charge to Timothy. This is so powerful. How do we know if the Apostle Paul held firm and held fast to this this clear gospel mission of proclamation? How do we know that he held firm to the conviction that this is the mission? Listen to what he says to Timothy shortly before he dies. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here's the caution. The accumulators will come. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then his final words, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Mission accomplished. Not only does the Apostle Paul clarify this gospel mission In the first part of verse 17, but in the second half, he clarifies gospel method. Notice, I'm going to read the whole verse For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he says, And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Now, rather than the Apostle Paul stating what a clear gospel method is, he emphasizes what it is not. And he does this in a repeated way. He echoes this same negative emphasis down in chapter two. Look at verse one of chapter two. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Drop down to verse three. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Now, this is not the Apostle Paul engaging in some form of self-critique of his preaching. This is the Apostle Paul critiquing this sophistic, this sophist influence that was alive and well in Corinth. And tragically, it was permeating the church as well. It was provoking even these party factions, these loyalties to these leaders in the way that they were calling out them by name as their, as their official leader. And the phrase here, particularly in chapter 2, verse 3, can literally be read, "...my words and my preaching..." or my words and my proclamation, were not in persuasion of wisdom. This word persuasion, Pitho, it's actually the name of the Greek goddess of persuasion. In Greek mythology, Pitho was portrayed as an attendant of Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual love and beauty. And Corinth was one of the centers of the cult of Aphrodite, Aphrodite. As an attendant of Aphrodite, Pitho personified seductive persuasion. But she also represented political persuasion and was also associated with the art of rhetoric. And the Apostle Paul is simply saying, I do not want to employ any methods of seductive persuasion. The method of gospel proclamation is not a method that seeks to manipulate or seduce in any way. It is a message that is oriented around the clarity and precision of the message being proclaimed. John Calvin, in reference to these plausible words of wisdom that Paul mentions, he says this, quote, he means that exquisite oratory which aims and strives rather by artifice than by truth. And also an appearance of refinement that allures the minds of men. Listen to what Bruce Winter says in his book that was going on with these Corinthians. Rhetorical methods often overshadowed the message as a means to persuade the audience. Audiences surrendered their critical faculties to the techniques of the sophists. You want to know why things have rapidly gone in certain directions? Sophistry. The absence of critical thinking, the detachment from objective standards of truth, now we are left to our own devices, our own emotions, and we're just asking people to impress us. And we'll follow you. Sophistry. Paul here, in this city full of sensuality and idolatry populated by people who Had this excessive fascination with clever yet empty oratory, he intentionally employs a preaching method that would stand in stark contrast to all of that. Like on purpose. I did not do these things, I did not speak in these ways on purpose. Because he does not want to be identified with this form of manipulative sophistry that is characterized by empty worldly wisdom. Now, here is the sad reality, and you guys know this, but there are many, many Christians, Christian leaders, and churches today that are insisting that new methods must be employed if we're gonna have any chance, quote unquote, to reach the next generation. As if reaching the next generation clearly defines our mission. Does it? Our mission, again, is the clear proclamation of the gospel, the saving message of Christ, whether or not anyone from the next generation believes is not on us. But the clear, steady, faithful proclamation is ours. And the method that we are to employ is to be straightforward and not characterized by manipulation or undue persuasive, clever techniques that arise or conceived in the mind of men, in the minds of men. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is calling for clarity and faithfulness in our mission of the gospel proclamation. He's calling for clarity about the methods we employ. And notice what he says in verse 17, the last part, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What what does he mean by this? Clever, highly nuanced, culturally accommodated and worldly-wise method, methods never enhance the effectiveness of gospel witness. Never. The exact opposite is true. This is what he's saying. It does not enhance the message. It empties the cross of its power. You drop down to chapter two again and you look at verses two to five, the first part. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Verse five, so that your faith might not rest On the wisdom of men. How many people in our day's faith is resting on the wisdom of men? Because sophistry, persuasion is the method being employed. The Apostle Paul says, no, just the opposite. Clarity, gospel clarity about method is to recognize that when we seek to win crowds and win favor through our cleverness and our ideas and our oratory, we are not employing the methods of gospel clarity. And we do not want to be aligned with that because in so doing, we will remove the gospel's power. The cross of the Christ will empty it of its power. And we will, in some way or another, compel men to place their faith in our wisdom and not in the objective revealed truth and word of God in the person of Christ, the apostle Paul says, no, I want their faith to rest solely and exclusively on the power of God. if we're going to navigate and engage our strange new world, we need to maintain a clear gospel mission that we're carrying out with clear gospel messages uh, methods now these next two Points are going to be fairly quick and fairly surveyed. I don't know if you noticed, but we just did two points with one verse. And we've got like a thousand more verses to cover with two points. So just know that these are rich verses of Scripture that I'm only going to touch on in survey fashion to draw out a couple of more points of gospel clarity. These next two points will be primarily just observational from the text. But just know that these verses are packed, and they're dense with rich truth. The third point of gospel clarity is that we must have a clear gospel doctrine. This is what we see emerging from verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, just so you know, Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar and commentator on, on this letter, this first letter of the Corinthians, says this about this section. It is one of the truly great moments in the Apostle Paul and in the whole of Christian scripture. So forgive me, I'm not going to deal with it with the same level of depth that he alludes to here. Just a few quick observations. What do we mean by clear gospel doctrine? Simply put, there are only two kinds of people in the world. And Paul identifies them here in verse 18. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that's it. Simple. Clear, right? When we think about engaging this strange new world with all of these nuanced positions and all of these new ways of, of understanding our sense of identity and our sexuality and we engage the world where you, know, you do you and live your best life and all these kinds of ideas and 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 nuanced positions, we look at that world. What we need to come back to is this gospel doctrine. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And any time you and I find ourselves hearing leaders, Christian pastors, wanting to flood the zone with nuance and complexity and cultural accommodation, and crafting our words in a certain way so that we, we have the best opportunity to win them. Red flags should be going up in your mind because it's very simple. Two kinds of people, the perishing and those who are being saved, and then the gospel lands on people in only two ways. It is folly to those who are perishing But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. So in this gospel mission of proclamation, of this specific redemptive message of the work of Christ, delivered in a way that is not characterized by sophistry, by by plausible arguments that are not accurate or true or could be even fallacious or seeking to try to manipulate people's emotions into, into confessing something that they don't fully believe or not fully convicted of, whatever the case may be that we need to recognize that no matter how this looks to other people, the way it looks to God is that there are two kinds of people and your message is going to land on them in one of two ways. They are going to see it as folly or they're going to receive it as the power of God. So the message doesn't have to be nuanced and twisted and refined to go after some narrowly open door in the heart of this particular person who has this particular bent or this particular background or this particular that or this, that, or the other. It is straightforward proclamation, knowing that there are two kinds of people and this message lands on them and only... One of two ways. And then the third simple observation about gospel doctrine here is that God will destroy worldly wisdom and judgment. That's what you see here. He's going to destroy it. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So this really begs the question. It is complete folly to mix or commingle worldly wisdom with the message of the gospel. Why would any of us or any Christian leader make the calculated decision to intentionally bring in principles of worldly wisdom into gospel proclamation when the very worldly wisdom that they're mingling with this precious gospel is going to be destroyed in judgment by the living God? It it makes no doctrinal sense whatsoever. God will destroy Worldly wisdom and judgment. So, we clarify our gospel mission. It is a mission of proclamation of the message of Christ. We clarify our methods. It is oriented toward protecting the integrity and clarity of the message and doing nothing to undermine it with clever ideas of man-made wisdom And we are informing these methods with clear gospel doctrine. That there are those out there, regardless of what they're presenting, that are either among the perishing or they're among the being saved. And our mission is clear. Proclaim the gospel. And it will land on them in one of two ways. Either it will be folly or it will be the very power of God to save. And every bit of our confidence and dependence is in that, which is the last point. We must have a very clear gospel dependence. This is what we see in the remaining verses and starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boast boast in the Lord. Even the Apostle Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My confidence, my dependence was not on myself. Our confidence in engaging and navigating this strange new world must rest completely upon the gospel that we are called to proclaim with gospel methods informed by gospel doctrine and we lay ourselves before the Lord in all of this recognizing that it is only because of him and his grace that we are in Christ. So it stands to reason that anyone else who comes to faith in Christ in this strange new world it will be the same for them too. Only because of Christ, only because God's choosing them to be in Christ will they come. So we can't lose heart. We can't be fearful. We can't lament in hopelessness. We just carry out the mission with gospel clarity, gospel conviction, gospel dependence. God, help us to be that kind of people, that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we recognize that we can so easily become discouraged by the difficulties in the world around us. We can be indignant against those that bring shame and reproach upon the name of Christ. We can feel at times a sense of dread at where all this is going. What is the next thing that will happen? And so I pray that as we consider these principles of gospel clarity that you would draw us into your truth that shines light into these places of confusion and into these places of cowering and fear or anxiety or hopelessness. And I pray that in contemplating these gospel clarity truths that you would embolden us and enliven us to the mission that's before us, that you would compel us to be faithful proclaimers of the message of Christ with the sole intent of seeing what kind of work you choose to do in the lives of the people that you are are bringing to yourself. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is not in Christ, I pray that even the proclamation of this word would, by your spirit, penetrate their hearts, draw them to yourself, bring about repentance and faith, that they might be able to participate in this great mission that you've called us to. Give us greater gospel clarity in in the midst of this strange new world. May you find us faithful in Christ's name. Amen.